Well, let me welcome you here as we continue in our series called More Than Conquerors. And we're looking at a great chapter in the book of the Bible, chapter 8 in the book of Romans. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest chapters there is. That's the opinion of many Bible scholars throughout the ages. In fact, it was Donald Gray Barnhouse that said this, if your Bible should accidentally fall on the floor, it should automatically open to Romans chapter 8. And that's how important this chapter is to him. That's how special it is to him. And what makes it so special to all of us, really, is that it's really a celebration of the work of the Holy Spirit relative to our salvation. Before we get to chapter 8, we, we look through the first seven chapters, and what we find is the, the Holy Spirit is mentioned only one time, one time in the first seven chapters. You get to chapter 8, and the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 19, possible 20 times, it depends how people count, but multiple times in this chapter. And, and the Holy Spirit plays this crucial role in our salvation, and we, and we see that played out in this chapter. He's the one who freed us from the law of sin and death and, and moved us into the realm where we, where we face no condemnation in our lives. He's the one who changed our thinking, so now that we set our minds not on the flesh, but we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. He's the one who dwells within us so that we know that we belong to Christ. He's the one who raised us up to newness of life so that one day we will know that we will receive a new body, a resurrected body, just like Christ. And he's the one who adopted us into the family of God. And he bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. I mean, this chapter celebrates the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And today we're going to look at another good work that the Spirit does. I mean, this, is, this isn't exhaust what he does. And today we're going to look at another part of the good work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. But before we do, let's just pause and let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we want to thank you again that you sent your Holy Spirit for our salvation, and we've been looking at the wonderful work that he does in our lives. And Father, as we look at another glimpse of the Holy Spirit's working today, uh, Father, I pray that our hearts would be tuned in, that our eyes would be open, that our, that our spirits would be receptive to what the Spirit has for us to receive today. And so, Father, we want you to come and be part of what's taking place here. And so inspire us, whether we are at home or in an in a, uh, office setting, wherever we do, are at, let this be a time when we experience the, the, the added work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, we're going to look at another good work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And the work that he does is he causes us to experience, be able to experience the, the glory of Christ in our own lives. And so the upside of the work of the, of the Spirit is that we are able and allowed to share in the glory of Christ. The downside of the work, though, is this, that in order to get there, we have to go with, through some suffering in this world. And so that's what Paul's going to share with us today. So we come to verse 17 of Romans chapter 8, and look what Paul says. And if we are children, and it's really since we are children, it's the idea, it's, it's not a question if we are, it's more of a statement that we are. We are the children of God. And so now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we also may share in his glory. I mean, do you see what it's saying? 
that there's a direct connection between the present suffering that we're going through now and the future glory that we're going to experience later on. That in order for us to get to that glory, there's going to be the need for us to go through some suffering here in this world. And so there's a, a direct connection between them. In fact, as I study this passage that we're looking at in, in chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. As I look at the, those verses, Paul gave us five observations that have to do with present suffering and future glory. Or I'll say it this way, of present groanings and future glory. And Paul wants us to see five things when it comes to that transition from groaning to glory. So let's look at it. Here's the first. It's our present suffering that leads to future glory. It's our present suffering that actually, the suffering that we experience right now that leads to our glory in the future. In fact, the matter is, Jesus did, went through that himself. Jesus had to go through that. I mean, Jesus had to go through the suffering of, and the pain of the cross in order to experience the resurrection and the glory that was, that was before him. And he understood that. And, and he even talks about that in the book of Hebrews. It talks about how he, you know, set before him the joy to endure the suffering that he was going through. And so our Lord experienced the same pathway to his glory that you and I are needing to follow as well. And so God's plan for our glorification actually comes through the pathway or the doorway of suffering. And yet oftentimes it's suffering that causes the biggest problems in our lives when it comes to our faith. Years ago I skimmed an autobiography of, of Laura Bush. And I, and I said I skimmed it and I did skim it. And, and the book talked about how when she was 17 years old she blew through a stop sign and collided with a classmate who was driving through that intersection, and she killed her classmate. I mean, she was devastated by what she had done, and she was, it led to a, a painful se season in her life where she said this, I lost my faith, and I lost it for many, many years. I mean, that's what she was feeling, that what, why should I go on? I, where is my faith doing for me? And she lost her faith for many, many years. That's the peril, isn't it, when it comes to suffering? That's the peril that we experience when we go through times of, and seasons of hardship and pain in our lives. We start thinking, where is God? Why did this happen? Where is God? Why doesn't he do something about it? Where is God? Doesn't he care with what I'm going through? And it creates this potential for us to give up on God because the pain that we're going through is so devastating to us and so hurtful for us to handle. In fact, I remember it was a number of years ago, there was a young couple that was attending our church and, and, and they were expecting a child and yet she miscarried just before the due date. So at the end stages of her pregnancy, they lost the child. And it really caused them to lose their faith because they decided that they're not going to give up on God and they're not going to come back to church. And they never did. Paul wants us to know that even though we're children of God, that we are loved by God, even though we're loved by God, that we're still going to go through times of suffering in this world. In fact, here's what Paul told Timothy. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will experience or will be persecuted. Now, 
Granted, he was talking to Timothy at a time when the, the Christians were experiencing severe persecution. Nero was on the, on the uh, ruling in, in Rome, the emperor of Rome, and he had decided to get rid of Christians. And so Christians were under fire. The church was under fire. And, and so he wanted Timothy to know if that persecution came your way, Timothy, just be aware that living godly lives can bring about that kind of persecution. But the point is that the Bible makes clear to us that when we identify with Jesus Christ, there will be a price that we have to pay. And so we are going to experience some suffering in this world, maybe suffering in general or persecution in particular, but we're going to have to go through some hard times, and you're not going to get out of this life without going through those times. Good news is that it always leads to greater glory. In fact, not only does Paul tell us that, but Peter tells us the very same thing in, in his letter. And so here's what Peter writes, 1 Peter. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering. He was living at the same time that this persecution was happening in the world. Do not be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though something strange is happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed, not just enjoy, but overjoyed when the glory is revealed. I mean, isn't that good? In other words, our suffering will lead to experience a greater joy when we experience the glory that God has waiting for us. And so the first observation that Paul makes is that this present time will be suffering, but the future time will be glorious. And so let's look forward to that. Here's the second thing that he wants us to, to know, though, as well. Second observation, our present suffering doesn't compare to our, our future glory. Our present suffering does not compare to our future glory. Look what Paul says in verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present age or this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And when Paul says, I consider, for I consider, what he's doing is he's making a calculation, isn't he? He's making a calculation, he's figuring something out, and he's come to the conclusion after he's calculated it all out that, that what he's going through right now does not compare to what he's going to go and experience in the future later on. And his conclusion is that it's not even worth comparing these two things. In fact, look how Paul puts it in, in the, his letter to the Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthians. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs that all. Now, did Paul go through some tough times? You bet he did. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned to the point where they thought he had died. Three more times he was shipwrecked. He tells us that he spent a day and a night adrift at sea. There were times when he was hungry and had no food to eat. There were times when he was tired and couldn't find any way to sleep. And now he says, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's what he calls them, light and momentary. Because what he's doing is he's comparing to what he's going to receive there to what he's going through now. He's got such a strong vision of the glory that's waiting for him when he gets to heaven that whatever suffering he has to do in this life right now, he's just saying, you know what, I don't care what I go through. It's light 
and it's momentary. You know, we've all gone through some pretty tough times in the last few months, haven't we, in this nation? Actually, around the world. And all of us have gone through a, the suffering that has to do with feeling isolated, disconnected, social distance from others around us. And you know, some of us have gotten to a point, and some of you have gotten to the point where you just kind of just, you're thinking, you know, I don't care what the governor says. I don't care what the leaders of our world tell us. I'm not, I'm not listening to them anymore. I'm getting back together. I don't care about having to social distance. I want to be by people, and I'm going to get back, and it doesn't matter what our church says. I'm getting back. And you come up with this whole idea that, you know, the suffering is too great to be able to endure what our, our governmental leaders are telling us to do. Paul, here's what I, I would say that Paul too would tell you. What you're going through is light and momentary, even compared to what I went through when the governmental powers over my life put me in jail for a number of years, isolated from the churches that I loved. But he still said this, as all that I've gone through is light and momentary because what I'm focusing on is a glory that's waiting for me. All I'm saying is that glory is coming. It's on the horizon and we need to look for it and wait for it and anticipate it with eagerness because it's there. It's coming. And we are going to experience it, no matter what we go through in this world. Remember how Peter said to Jesus, you know, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. I mean, what a big statement that is, right? I mean, tremendous. We have sacrificed everything to be a follower of you. And, and Jesus didn't even say, thank you, Peter, for doing that. What he said was, let me tell you something. I want to tell you the truth. No one, neither you or anyone, Peter, who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, Peter don't even try to compare with what you're going through now to what you're going to get when you experience glory then. And so what Paul is telling us, there's no reason to compare this life to the next life. The pain and the problems and the predicaments and the pressures that we experience in life doesn't hold a candle to the grandeur and the glory and the greatness that we're going to experience in the life to come. And so let's not compare the suffering to the glory that is coming. Here's a third observation that Paul gives us. Our present suffering is actually shared by all of creation. We're not in this alone. All of creation is suffering as well. Our present suffering is shared by all creation. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It didn't choose to do it, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That's God who did it. See, and so when Paul says subjected to frustration, he's using, using a word in the Greek that it means 
pointlessness, emptiness, aimlessness, uselessness. See, all of creation's feeling that it's not fulfilling the purpose for which it was created to fulfill. That's what it's feeling. In other words, Paul is saying that right now creation is in a state of frustration, a futility, that it's not doing what it was created to do. And it's because God subjected it to that position because of what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And we know what happened. A curse came upon the world. Sin always brings a curse. Sin always blocks the blessings of God. And so we read in Genesis 3, to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must eat of it, because you did that. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat all the days of your life. You're going to have to work to get the, the food that you're going to eat. It will produce, that's the ground, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In other words, God put creation under a curse, didn't he? Sin, as I said, brings a curse. It always brings a curse. It always breaks the blessing of God. And so all creation is subjected to frustration, and you think, well, why would God do that to creation? Well, here's what Paul says. In the hope that creation itself will be liberated from the bondage of decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children or the children of God. In other words, God subjected creation to bondage so that creation would one day experience a glorious freedom that comes when we all experience our glorification. See, this is the ultimate plan for creation. God's going to restore its condition. In fact, Paul goes on to say all of creation is groaning right now for that to happen. So here's what he says. And we know that whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. I mean, this is an amazing picture. I mean, talk about getting a bad rap. Creation didn't do anything wrong, didn't do anything that they were at fault for. And now they're reduced to having to groan as a woman groans in the last stages of her pregnancy. And the word for groaning there is not this mild moaning that takes place. It's really a word that was used to describe, well, one place it's, it's used to describe the death cries of a warrior out on the battlefield after the battle is done, and he's lying on the ground wounded or dying, and he's groaning for somebody to come help him, or he's groaning for him to just to be able to be relieved by death from the pain that he's going through. That's what this word groaning represents. See, that's a picture that Paul's painting. Creation is literally, it, what, in the throes of death. And the only hope it has is what? For you and me to one day be glorified by God. That's what it's waiting for. And so what is it doing? Well, Paul says it's eagerly waiting for that to take place. And, and, and the picture is that it's, it's like creation is looking over the edge of something. It's looking out over something. It's, it's, it's gazing out. It's, it's on its tiptoes wanting to get this glory that's coming, but it hasn't come yet, and it's in the pain, groaning in this pain because it hasn't arrived. It's coming, but it's waiting for it. So... If we look at God's creation, it groans eagerly waiting for glorification. 
Let me give you the fourth observation. Our present suffering produces in us a hope of new bodies. Our present suffering puts within us a hope for the new bodies that we're going to receive, our resurrected bodies. Here, here's how Paul says it. And not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the full adoption of sons, which is the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, or do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. See, the point is this, that you and I are waiting too, groaning for new bodies that are going to be coming for us to experience someday. These bodies weren't designed for eternity. These bodies aren't going to make it into heaven. And so we wait for new bodies. And the more we suffer, the more we groan for the new bodies. Isn't that true for you? I mean, just think about it. The more pain I have, the more discomfort I experience in life from the body that I've been given, see, the more I, I look forward to the new body that Christ will have for me. And as we age, that, that longing for a new body becomes even more prevalent in our lives. See, and here it's not a bad groaning, but what it is, it's a groaning that produces hope. In fact, five times Paul will talk about the hope right here. Five times he talks about hope in Romans chapter 8. And Paul reminds us that we haven't received our body yet, and we're not, but we are going to get one. I mean, we know we haven't received it, but we are going to get one. So we wait eagerly, patiently for it to come. And so the fact is, one day we're going to be given it. And we have the hope that it's coming. Let me give you the last observation that Paul makes. Not only is our present suffering leading to future glory, not only is our present suffering not to be compared to our future glory, not only is the present suffering affecting all of creation, not only is our present suffering giving us hope that there's a resurrected body waiting for us, but here's the fifth thing that Paul says, that our present suffering enables the Spirit to intercede for us in our weakness. Our present suffering enables the Spirit to intercede for us in our weakness. I like that. And here's how Paul says it. In the same way, in the same way that we have hope in our future bodies coming, Paul says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groans. Third time, Paul uses the idea of groaning. See, that there's, a, there's this feeling that something more is there and we want to get it. And so the inner spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot even express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. In other words, the weakness that we have in the times of suffering is that we just don't know how to pray, right? We, we've all been there. I mean, God, what, do we, what should I say? God, what should I pray for? In times of suffering, it's hard for us to know what to pray for. And yet Paul says that the Holy Spirit knows what to pray for. In those moments when we don't know what to pray for, the Holy Spirit knows what to pray for. And not only does he know what to pray for, but he's interceding for us on behalf of us 
with groans that are so deep that we, it's not even be able to express those groans in words. He, he wants so much for us to experience what God has for our lives that he prays and intercedes that the will of God will be fulfilled in our lives and he groans to do that. And so in those moments of suffering, in those seasons of hardship, see, we can't leave everything, or we can, let me say, we can leave everything in the hand of God and know that the Holy Spirit is praying for us in our weakness. You know, back in 1932, there was a black songwriter, his name was Tom Dorsey. Tom Dorsey was a man who lived in a small apartment in the south side of Chicago, he was married. They were expecting their first child. It was an exciting time for them to think that their child was only a, about a month or a few weeks away, maybe a few days away. It was that close. And uh, then he got an invitation to come and sing at a revival meeting down in St. Louis, Missouri. And he debated if he should go or not, and he didn't want to go because, you know, things were so close to happening and the birth was so imminent, and yet they kept pleading with him to come and to sing for the revival, and finally he gave in and he did that. He decided to go. And so he got in his Model A car. This is with, you know, the, the main, major make of a car in 1932 was a Model A, and he, and he drove down to St. Louis. And two days later, he gets a, a union a Western Union telegraph. And he opens it up. And he reads these words. Your wife just died. I mean, what a tragedy. And he packs everything up and he heads home. And right when he gets home, the baby that was born dies. And in the next days, he buries his wife and his child in the same casket. And he feels like his life is over. And he closets himself away in his apartment, not wanting to see anybody. But at the door comes a friend of his. His name was Professor Fry. And he comes and knocks at the door, and he says, Thomas Let's go down to the music studio. Let's go down there and maybe you can find some comfort. Just, just sit at the piano and maybe you can find some comfort down there. And so together they don't go down to the music studio. Thomas Dorsey sat at the piano, fingers on the keys, just sitting, resting on the keys. And then he starts to play a melody that he had never heard before, never played before. But as he starts playing the melody, words start coming into his mind that seem to perfectly fit what he's playing. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the hymn that he wrote, but it got recorded. And it's been sung in congregations across our nation over the years. And here are the words. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the nights, lead me on to the light. 
take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me home. I mean, the message of the music says it all. But he did say something more about that day. And he said this, The Lord gave me these words and melody, and he healed my spirit. And I learned that when we are in our deepest grief, when we feel furthest from the Lord, this is when he is the closest, and when, he is open, when we are the most open to his restoring power. And then he makes a statement, So I'm going to go on living for God, willing, for God willingly and joyfully until the day comes when he takes me and gently leads me home. You know, God's never promised to keep us from pain and suffering, has he? He never told us that we're born into a perfect world. But what he has promised is, is what Laura Bush never found, that he's close in suffering. And what he promised is what we don't have to go through like Laura Bush went through when she said, I lost my faith and I lost it for many, many years. Instead, God wants us to see that in our difficulties, in the tough times of life, and some of us may be going through some pretty tough times right now, that he comes close by and he strengthens us in our weakness and he makes us overcomers so that we can overcome that which would overcome us. And so here's the conclusion of the whole matter. God doesn't use suffering to make us suffer. God uses suffering to present us before him in glorious splendor in a future where we will only know the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the question is, are you able to suffer to receive that kind of glory? Remember again what Paul said? For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs whatever we go through in this life. See, that's the good work that the Holy Spirit has done in our lives. See, the groaning will be turned into glory through the power of the Holy Spirit.